0: Welcome to the British History Podcast. My name is Jamie, and this is episode 243, The Sieges of Athelred of Mercia. This show is ad-free due to member support, and as a way of thanking members for keeping the show independent, I offer members-only content, including extra episodes and rough transcripts. This week on the members' feed, Zee and I talked for about an hour or so on some of the things we find most interesting about the story of Alfred thus far. Here's a clip. What I loved hearing about was how not just these armies were going, bouncing from burr to burr, but messengers were as well. Messages could suddenly, information could bounce from these things quickly and safely on a level that they hadn't been able to before. And as someone who really likes tower defense games, i <laughs> super excited about that. You know what it reminds me of actually is Hadrian's Wall, how they had Hadrian's Wall set up where yes, yeah. all they had the big fortresses, but they had those little fortlets as well. And they were set up specifically. So, and they had a road on the inside. So you could quickly send messages and you can ferry troops wherever they were needed. And that's in the local history. And Alfred was bringing all the greatest minds of the area. In. Oh Yeah. I wonder he might've known about that. And if he didn't know about that, he might've known about other tactics that use something similar or it they could be recreating something they learned on their time at Alphenley if they were trying to move messages between small rating bands. Yeah. You can get instant access to that episode and all the other members' episodes by signing up for membership at the Podcast.com for only about the price of a latte per month. And thank you very much to Anne, Niels, and Langers for signing up already. Imagine that you're in your 20s. You're a member of the royal dynasty, next in line for the throne but your future court is filled with powerful eldermen who expect their king to be a warrior. Now, given the mood of the nobles and how some of them are chafing at your father's style of rule, it's become clear that you can't leave any doubt in your legitimacy to rule. Any weakness, any failure to prove your manhood, and your succession could be in jeopardy. And then suddenly, One of the most fearsome armies of Northmen in Western Europe arrives on your shores. And you're the one to lead the army that routed it. That was the situation that Edward Atheling found himself in at Farnham. Following that victory, his position at court dramatically improved. In a single day of fighting, he had proven his worth and silenced his detractors. But the story didn't end there. The Danes fled... And in his haste, Edward and his army left all of their supplies behind. And even worse, the victory at Farnham was accomplished with the equivalent of unpaid interns. And their contracts had all just expired. And they were no longer interested in risking their lives for exposure and experience. The way Alfred reorganized his military provided Wessex with an almost continuous standing army almost continuous. There was just the small issue of turnover between shifts. And it turns out that Edward's victorious army was serving at exactly that period of turnover. And as a result, it evaporated. It's unclear whether the remaining Danes and Thorney had noticed that suddenly Edward's massive siege was only conducted with a few dozen people. But even if Edward managed to hide his numbers. That wasn't going to last. Despite his recent success, this whole thing was fast turning into a debacle. But Edward had a sharp mind. And even though the Danes were out of reach because they were on the Isle of Thorny, their location had actually granted him one more card that he could play. Now, listening to this podcast, you're unlikely to have heard of the Island of Thorny. That's because it no longer exists. Over time, erosion and urban development have completely erased this little island from the maps. But where it once stood now stands Westminster Abbey and the Palace of Westminster. But in Edward's time, it was just the island of Thorny, and it was just a stone's throw away from the city of London and Londonwich. So, even though his fur had departed, that didn't mean that Edward was without resources. The Mercian Guard of London were stationed just down the Thames, and they were commanded by Edward's own brother in law, Athelred of Mercia. Now, however, the call went up, whether it was by horse or foot or some other means, Elderman Athelred answered it, and the arrival of the warriors of London were a welcome sight. But Athelred's Ferd was just a small fraction of the massive West Saxon army that had chased the Danes to the island. And that deficit of manpower could be fatal to their siege, should the Danes realize just how easily they could overwhelm the Anglo-Saxons that stood watch and consequently surge forth and break that siege. What they needed was a relief force, and King Alfred was bringing it. He was commanding the freshly raised Ferd of Wessex, And Edward and Athelred just needed to hide their numbers and hold these Vikings in place long enough for his arrival. They just needed to hold out long enough for King Alfred to get to them. And Alfred was coming. To the south, Alfred and his massive force of fighters were snaking their way through the countryside. They were drawn from the various burrs and villages all throughout the region. And provided that they rallied at the capital in Winchester... This army had about a 65-mile march ahead of it. In all, it should take about two days, less if Alfred and his eldermen decided to risk angering and exhausting the Ferd by engaging in a forced march. But one way or another, they would reach Thorny. His son Edward just had to hold his men steady a little longer. The march that they were undertaking would have been arduous and kind of boring, they were carrying their weapons and armor. They are also likely pulling wagons containing their supplies. Always remember that an army marches on its stomach. And this was an enormous force that wasn't just planning on relocating. They were preparing for a siege. So they would have needed to bring things to prepare for that. It would have been difficult. And I often wonder if they had songs that they sang to keep them entertained, like more modern forces have done. Or if they marched in a grim silence. Or maybe it was raucous with small talk as everyone tried to keep their minds off of what they would find at the end of the road. Regardless, hour after hour, they marched. And then at some point, as they were traversing through the hills and woods of Wessex, some messengers arrived. And they weren't there with word of Edward, but they still sought an audience with the king. And they told him that just now, as Alfred was rushing to his son's rescue and to secure his victory over the Danish army from Appledore, another army was moving upon Wessex. A massive fleet of over a hundred ships had been sighted off the coast of Britain, and it was headed south towards Wessex. And these ships had come from Northumbria and East Anglia. The treaties and hostages had failed. The Danes of northeastern Britain were launching their invasion at the same time when the forces of Wessex were likely to be tied up fighting the Appledore Danes. This wasn't just bad luck, and Alfred likely knew immediately that it wasn't a coincidence. Gathering that many ships and forming into a large multi-kingdom fleet required a lot of time, as well as work and careful diplomacy. This had to have been in the works for quite a while. Over the winter or early spring, the Danes of Appledore had found a way to coordinate their efforts with the Scandinavian kingdoms in southern Britain. This was exactly the scenario that Alfred hoped to avoid through his diplomatic efforts. And yet here it was. And then the messenger's news got worse from there. They also reported that the combined Northumbrian and East Anglian fleet wasn't sailing up the Thames to relieve the Danes on Thorny. Instead, they had rounded the tip of Kent and were sailing west, up the southern coast of his kingdom. Another front was about to open up in this war. And while Alfred didn't know exactly where that would be, it was clear that it would be far from Thorny. And they weren't alone. Hastin had roused his army at Benfleet, crossed the border into eastern Mercia, and was pillaging the villages that he found there. And if Haston realized how exposed and weakened Edward Atheling was, and how easily the siege on Thorny could be broken, just how long do you think it would take him to launch a surprise attack on the Athling? It wasn't that long of a march, and the potential rewards for such a strike were extreme. But luckily for Alfred, Haston's forces currently seem content with attacking Mercia. But if they got word of what was happening at Thorny... That could all change, and his son's life, and perhaps even their grip on London, could be imperiled. Alfred was placed in an impossible position. Would he race to his son's rescue and help him finish off the Danes of Appledore, and possibly also deal with Haston? Or would he move south to counter the next invasion of his lands? An invasion that, if left alone, very well might march directly upon his capital, I don't know how long Alfred pondered this. I don't know if he delayed or if he just decided to press on, but Alfred's hand might have been forced when news came in that the fleet to the south had split up. Sixty ships had landed at Exeter and lay siege to it, while the other forty continued west, rounded the coast of Cornwall, and landed on the northern coast of Devon, possibly at Countessbury the very same location where Ada had famously fought against Ubba. There could be no avoiding it. Alfred had to make a choice. Would he fight on the northern front of the war or fight on the western front? But even then, even if he made a choice, those fronts were split. If he went west, would he go to Exeter or Countesbury? Or if he went north, would he go to Thorny or into Mercia? Alfred was in command of a single army, and yet he had a total of four enemy armies active in his kingdom. So where should he go? Where would his forces best be used? There were no easy answers. So he weighed his options, issued his orders to his commanders, and began the march. Now, messengers could travel far quicker than an army, especially if the messengers were on horseback, which they likely were. So the first friendly face from Alfred's army that Athelred and Edward saw was probably that of an exhausted messenger. But he came with good news. The relief force was on its way. And it was trailing behind the messenger by no more than a day or two. However, it was a small detachment. The bulk of the king's forces weren't coming. Instead, they were making the 140-mile march to relieve the city of Exeter which was currently under siege by Northumbria and East Anglia. Familial ties aside, it was clear that the king and his forces were needed elsewhere. Elderman Athelred and Edward Atheling would have to make do with what they had and find a way to pacify the Danes of Appledore and perhaps also address the threat raised by Haston's forces that were pouring out of Benfleet. And I wish we knew what was going on in Alfred's mind when he made that choice or in Edward's when he heard of it. I mean, there really were no good choices in that situation, and perhaps the thinking was that the forces of Appledore were so badly damaged that Edward and Athelred wouldn't need any more than a single detachment. Or perhaps Alfred was issuing a test. I really don't know, but I imagine that the mood at the West Saxon Mercian campfires turned dark upon receiving this news. But there was no time to grouse. Edward and Athelred had lost the luxury of time. The king wasn't coming. The forces that were coming wouldn't be enough to complete the siege, especially if they were also at war with the Danes of Northumbria and East Anglia. And right now, they were the only ones who knew that. As far as the Appledore Danes on Thorny knew, Edward still had a fully functioning Ferd, and he was preparing to take the island. So, Athelred and Edward needed to move quickly to resolve the situation before the Danes on Thorny figured out how weak the West Saxon position truly was. So, messengers were sent to the island to offer terms. Strict terms, so that the Danes wouldn't suspect anything, but also terms that they would be likely to accept. If the Danes would provide the king with hostages and make oaths to immediately depart Wessex in peace, then Edward and Athelred would lift their siege. And the Danes of Appledore, battered from the Battle of Farnham and fearful of another devastating clash against this ruthless army, agreed to the terms. And according to Athelweird, unlike many other treaties, the Danes kept their word on this one. They were in no position to launch another strike. They needed respite. So the bloodied, hungry, and exhausted Danish warriors of Appledore crossed the Thames, and began their march northeast, probably under the watchful eye of scouts and perhaps even flanked by local forces of Mercia and Wessex. But eventually, finally, they made it to East Anglia, crossed the border, and made the long journey to Mersey, where their ships waited them. But they didn't all board their ships and leave. According to Abels, some did, Their fortune had been brutal as of late and some would have decided to cut their losses and leave Britain. Similarly, Abel's theorizes that if King Eric allowed it, some others might have chosen to abandon the raiding life and settle in East Anglia. After all, when they lost at Farnham, they didn't lose all of their loot. They only lost the portion of the loot that they picked up from the raids during their campaign through Wessex. But the rest of the loot the stuff they gained at the Weald and elsewhere, well, that had been loaded onto their ships and sent ahead of them to Mercy. So they very well might have had the resources to be able to buy plots of land. At least some of them may have. But not all of them were ready to give up raiding in Britain. Many of them had come to these lands seeking wealth, and they weren't going to leave until they were satisfied. They just needed time to recover, because many of them, including their king, had been terribly injured in battle. And so they hunkered down at Mersey, tended to their wounds, and prepared for their next move. Once they recovered, they could once again go a Viking. And considering that Haston was only a few days' march away, they might have even discussed joining his encampment. So, while some of the Danes of Appledore did abandon the island, and perhaps even the lifestyle, others remained. The Danes of Appledore had been hobbled, but they were not fully broken. And we don't have a specific timeline of events here, but probably at about the same time that the Danes of Appledore retreated, the detachment that was sent from Alfred's Grand Ferd reached their destination and marched into London. The reinforcements were here, and Elderman Athelred immediately went to work. And you might be asking, well, what about Edward? And that's a good question. I really don't know what Edward was up to after Thorny. I don't know if he rode to support his father after the Danes left Thorny, or if he stuck around. But after that siege, Edward retreats from the spotlight, and the main focus of the scribes who were documenting the fight in the north becomes Elderman Athelred. And don't forget what we know about Elderman Athelred. The Welsh scribes who wrote of him noted two qualities. He had a beautifully flowing mane, And he was no stranger to battle. In fact, based upon what little we know about his history, Athelred was an energetic and aggressive leader in the model of the Mercian kings of old. If Athelred had cause for war, he wasn't one to wait for you to come to him. He would summon his warbands and bring the fight to you. And Athelred certainly had cause for war. Hastin had broken his sacred oaths. And he was now raiding through the lands of Mercia, his lands. And he was doing this even though Athelred had stood as godson over Haston's own child. This was a bond that was seen as more powerful than blood. And Haston not only ignored it, he was outright rejecting it and mocking it with these attacks. That could not be left unanswered. And Athelred was the elderman of Mercia and London. There was a huge swath of the population of Southern Britain that called him Lord. And his people were a warrior people. So Athelred called them to fulfill their duty. From London, London Witch, and the surrounding burrs, Athelred raised a large fyrd, And he added them to the detachment sent by Alfred. This wasn't a defensive force. This was an army ready to campaign. He just needed a direction to point them in. And that was the easy part. Athelred had scouts, but it's doubtful he really needed them in this situation, because Hastin wasn't hiding. Anyone paying attention knew where the Danes were encamped, and where they were striking from. And had this been several months earlier, attacking Hastin would have been difficult, because striking Benfleet could run the risk of provoking a response from King Eric of East Anglia. But a lot had changed in the recent months, and now the opinions of King Eric no longer mattered. He was already at war with Wessex. This really couldn't get any worse. And that fact left Haston's encampment politically exposed. So Athelred ordered the advance. They were going to the Viking Fortress at Benfleet. It was a short march, barely over thirty miles away, which meant that, even on foot, they could make it there in a day. And given the experience of Athelred, I suspect that he ordered exactly that. In fact, he might have even pressed his forces to move as fast as possible to take the Danes entirely by surprise and denied them much time to seek support from the East Anglians. And this gambit worked. The Danes at Benfleet didn't see them coming, They raced to their defenses and tried to hold a defensive perimeter, but the surging Anglo-Saxon army that swept towards them was simply too numerous to be held back. And after a brief struggle, Athelred and his army stormed the defenses. Realizing that the walls had been lost, the Danes fell back to the inner enclosure, but nothing was going to save them from what was pouring into the fortress. The Mercian West Saxon forces were enraged and any Vikings caught out in the open were slaughtered. It was a bloodbath. And after the brief clash, the Anglo-Saxons held the fortress at Benfleet. But it wasn't the resounding victory that Athelred might have been hoping for. This all came too easy. The Danish forces were too thin. And as Athelred looked for the main target of his campaign, Hastin... It was clear that he and many of the trusted companions that this oath-breaking pagan had brought with them to the baptism were missing. And if Haston and the bulk of his forces weren't at the fortress, there was only one reason for that. They were out in Mercia, raiding. Athelred and his warriors had failed to cut the head off of the snake. And now, they were far from London and at risk of a counterattack by Haston, or maybe even King Eric, But despite all of that, this campaign wasn't a complete failure. Athelred's army had taken a great deal of plunder in this battle. Benfleet harbored much of Haston's stolen loot, but it also harbored camp followers, and even some of their family members. We don't know how many of Haston's men brought their families with them on this campaign, but we know that among all the people captured in Benfleet, there were three familiar faces. Haston's wife and two children. He had left them in Benfleet to stay safe while he'd gone raiding, probably never imagining that Athelred would make such an audacious attack upon his stronghold. But here they were. And what you might have forgotten is that the Anglo-Saxons were slavers. Many of these stories portray the Vikings as the only slavers, and the Anglo-Saxons were the good folk who didn't engage in that sort of thing. But they did. And selling the women and children seized in this attack would have provided good profit that could be shared out among Athelred's supporters. Now, the men were unlikely to receive the same treatment. Women and children weren't warriors in Christendom, so they were less likely to be a threat. But a Vikinger? That's a different matter entirely. So any men that were captured probably came to a grisly end. But the rest? well, they were probably readied for transport back to London. Except for Haston's wife and children. They wouldn't be taken to market. Instead, they would stay with Athelred. That is, until King Alfred passed judgment upon them. And as for everything else in the fortress, all the booty was seized. And then the Mercians burned the fortress to the ground. Not even the ships were spared, The best of them, the most seaworthy, were seized by the triumphant Londoners and loaded with the slaves and booty for transport back to the city. But the remainder of the longboats were fired. Sailing back to London, with the fires of Benfleet probably still burning, Athelred could likely console himself with the fact that while he had failed to destroy Haston's forces, he nevertheless scored an important victory. He now had Haston's wife and kids. And perhaps this would finally bring the pagan to heel. Sometime later, Hastin and his forces returned from their raids, victorious and rich with wealth and slaves. And then they came into view of Benfleet. And there was nothing. They expected to see a harbor full of ships and their fortress bustling with activity. Perhaps they even expected to see their families looking over the defenses, excited to see their return but all of that was gone now there was only scorched earth burning wrecks and the corpses of their friends then they noticed that all the women and children were gone and to Haston's horror so were his wife and children but this is where we get a sense of what sort of man Haston was he was a vikinger down to his bones the first thing that he did upon seeing this was to establish a new fortress about 10 miles east from their previous encampment to Benfleet. He built it at a place called Shoebury. However, unlike Benfleet, this new fort wasn't intended to be a base of operations. Haston had underestimated the Anglo-Saxons once, and he wasn't gonna make the same mistake again. Showing his practical side, he selected the placement of this new fort so that he could provide a safe harbor for his forces. For his camp followers, and for his ships and booty. Because Hastin wasn't planning on leaving Britain anytime soon. And once his new stronghold was constructed, Hastin set about reorganizing his forces. And he also sought the assistance of any of the Appledore Danes who remained at mercy. Hastin's war wasn't over, it was just beginning. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns, you can reach me at thebritishhistorypodcast at gmail.com. We're also on Twitter. You can find us at British Podcast. And we have a lot of other communities you can join, and you can find links to all of them in the upper right-hand corner of thebritishhistorypodcast.com. Thanks for listening.